All right, you may be seated, and uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn them with me to the book of Ruth, and we're going to be in chapter 2. If you need a Bible, uh, slip up your hand. Uh, D is there with a stack of them, ready to give them out, and if you don't own one, I want you to keep it. All right, Ruth chapter 2. We're going to read the whole chapter. Word of God says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. He said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please, let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and she said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley." And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Let's pray. Father, as was pointed out in the last sermon last week, there are several characters in the book of Ruth, but we know that the main character is you, God. And so I pray this morning, as the word is being preached, that you would reveal yourself in your word, so that we can know more of you, know more of your character, and as a result, give more praise and glory to you, and love you even more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are in the book of Ruth for a four-week-long series before we um, kick back our series through the book of Acts. That'll start back on September 12th when we start Rewind. 
explore the Bible in all of our fall um, classes. So until then, though, we are going to be in the book of Ruth, this beautiful, wonderful short story that you find in the Old Testament, early in the Old Testament, right after the book of Judges. Uh, Let me recap a little bit for us Ruth chapter 1 to bring us up to speed before we dive into Ruth chapter 2. Uh, if you remember, Ruth 1 starts with Elimelech leading his family, which included Naomi, his wife, and his two sons, to the pagan land of Moab during a famine that had, been, that had stricken Israel. God apparently was judging Israel with a famine. And uh, so they leave. They leave specifically Bethlehem. Which in Bethlehem means house of bread. So the irony here is that they're leaving the house of bread because it has no bread. And they're going to Moab. I doubt that this was a very wise idea. Matter of fact, the scripture gives us hints that this was not the right thing for Elimelech to do. To take his family uh, from God's place, which is Israel, God's people, the Israelites, and go to the pagan Moabites. Matter of fact, Israel was being judged because they were copying the practices of all the pagan nations around them. But Elimelech leads his family um, to Moab. And the very thing Elimelech was running away from... He, he didn't want his family to starve so they wouldn't die. He ends up encountering as he dies in Moab. So Elimelech dies, and, and his sons, Mahon and Chilion, marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, and then they die. Shortly after that, they die. So Naomi is left destitute. She doesn't have provision. Without a husband and without sons in the home, she doesn't have provision. She doesn't have protection, and she doesn't have purpose. And so she's destitute, and she hears that God's judgment has been lifted from Israel, and so she heads back to Bethlehem. Her daughter-in-laws initially go with her, and on the way there, she encourages them to turn back, to go to their families, to go find a husband, to start their life over again, to have children. And after some insistence, Orpah goes back, but Ruth stays stays with Naomi, insists on staying with her mother-in-law, and says these famous words, which are found in chapter 1, starting in verse 16. She said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. So Naomi relents and allows Ruth to come with her, and they go to Bethlehem. But, but Naomi, when she arrives in Bethlehem, she's, she's very bitter. She's very angry and bitter about what God has, has done in her life. She says to everyone that God has dealt bitterly with her. He's brought her home empty. He's testified against her, and he's brought calamity upon her. His hand, according to Naomi, was against her. And we mentioned last week that Naomi's theology was right, but her mentality was wrong. She rightly attributed absolute sovereignty to God, but had forgotten also that he's entirely good. Thus, she was bitter. But she isn't empty. She isn't empty. She has Ruth with her. And God's hidden hand of providence is indeed at work, slowly, silently, stealthily working things together, weaving them together for good. For chapter 1 ends with this sentence. It says, And they came to Bethlehem, at the beginning of barley harvest. As I mentioned last week, there's lots of themes in this little book, but none jump off the page more clearly than the theme of God's providence, the providence of the Almighty. And so this morning, my illustration for the children, I wanted to do another illustration to help them kind of grasp and to help adults kind of grasp this idea of God's providence in the midst of life's troubles. Uh, whenever I hear an illustration, I heard this one this week. Whenever I hear one, and um, I, will, I like to pass it on. Now, some, I had a phone call this past week where someone asked me if we have too much of an influence, uh, too much of an, in, um, not influence, too much of an uh, insistence or too much of a focus on God's sovereignty at our church. And I like to think we only focus on it as much as Scripture focuses on it, which is a whole lot, because God is absolutely sovereign. And so, I got a picture here if my clicker's working all of a sudden. I'm not sure if the batteries are dead or not, but bring up my first picture here, and you guys are going to hang with the, with the, the sermon today. Um, now, that's just a, a picture. Now, kids, can you, can you guess what that is right there? What do you think it is? 
It's hair. No, it's not hair. But it's an extremely close-up picture of something. What do you think it is? Paint? No, it's not paint. And it's not hair. Tanner? Some sort of plant fibers, maybe. There's a scientific man over here. Some sort of plant fibers. It is a microscopic view of something, but it's not plant fibers, I don't think. It was just, it's not, no, no. All right, Ellie? Is it grass? No. Let me show you what that's a microscopic picture of. Here, go to the next picture for me. All right? Of that beautiful tapestry. Now, that's an Ecuadorian tapestry that they make in the, uh, in the city of Otavalo in Ecuador. They make beautiful, beautiful tapestries. Now, go back to the previous picture for me. Okay, that doesn't look beautiful. That looks like a mess. Looks like a tangled web of chaos. Strings going this way, strings going that way. It doesn't look like it makes any sense. Okay, it's actually a microscopic view of the actual fibers they weave together to make that beautiful tapestry. Now, here's the deal. That's a microscopic little point in that tapestry that we have a very, very, very close-up picture of right there. Imagine God's universe and God's purposes. Okay, think about how big that is. And now think about you and how little you are in the whole scheme of things, in God's whole picture. You're just this tiny little microscopic person in the midst of God's perfect plans. And there are times when we feel like Naomi that our life looks horrible, nasty, all tangled up, all twisted. Nothing seems to make any sense. Why is this going this way? Why is this going this way? And if we don't embrace by faith the bigger picture, go to the tapestry, if we don't embrace by faith the bigger picture that God is good and that he's weaving all these things together for our good, then we're going to be like Naomi. We're going to be bitter. We're going to be angry. And so as you're thinking about the story of Ruth, this, 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 it's a beautiful story. In this chapter here, things just are beginning to happen that is allowing Naomi to back up from that view that she had and she was so angry about. Things are beginning to happen. By the end of this chapter, she will begin to see God's beautiful plan unfolding. So keep that in mind as we read this chapter this morning, as we focus on this chapter this morning. As I looked at chapter 2 and and, and prayed through and thought through chapter 2, the word relevant came to mind. The Bible is so extremely relevant to our lives. The word relevant or culturally relevant has become sort of a hip and way overused word in the church today, especially in church plants. Churches want to be relevant. Pastors go to conferences to find out how to be relevant. I think that says more about pastors than it does about the church. They go to conferences to figure out how to be relevant, how to be culturally relevant. There's even a magazine for church leaders called Relevant. I'm increasingly convinced that the best way that the church can be culturally relevant is to simply preach the Bible. Because the Bible itself is absolutely and totally relevant to every part of our life. And so I am, it may sound over, it may sound like I'm oversimplifying things, but in reality, this book, this Bible here, is absolutely and totally relevant. This story of Ruth happened 3,000 years ago. What we're reading this morning happened 3,000 years ago, yet it speaks to us today. It speaks to the cultural issues we are facing today issues of ethnic diversity, how to accept people of other ethnicities in our society. It speaks to issues of sexuality and sexual purity. It speaks to issues of poverty and how to help those who are in need. It speaks to issues of wealth and how to handle wealth properly. It speaks to issues of how to deal with calamity in our life and how to deal with good that's happening in our life. And on and on and on. This little book is just one book in the big book of Scripture that has everything we need for life and godliness. This book is totally relevant to our lives today. One of the issues in particular, of particular cultural relevance today, is the issue of biblical womanhood and biblical manhood. Or you can just say it this way, how to be a godly man and how to be a godly woman. The world may say that the Bible has only old and old-fashioned ideas about womanhood and manhood, but that's simply not true. The Bible has eternal ideas about 
manhood and womanhood, true ideas that have been true since Adam walked in the garden with Eve. So I want us to look at some, some headlines from recent things just that, that have brought womanhood and manhood into the limelight recently. I don't know if you guys pay attention to pop culture or not, but maybe you heard this week that Jennifer Aniston didn't get along with Bill O'Reilly right now. They don't like each other, okay? Bill O'Reilly and Jennifer Aniston, that's just not a good mix in the first place. But they just don't, they're not getting along right now because Bill O'Reilly didn't like her movie and the, the, the themes that he thought it was sending out. And, and she has some thoughts to say, but she has some movie. I honestly don't know the name of the movie. I went on and read um, Focus on the Family's review of the movie, and they actually said the movie actually ends up proving the point that family, a, the whole family, father, mother, is important and that children need that. But anyway, I think something along the movie, um, she, she is in this movie, and, and she's trying to have a child without a husband, and she, and she accomplishes that. But uh, here's her quote. This is Miss Aniston's quote. Women are realizing more and more, knowing that they don't have to settle with a man just to have a child. Times have changed, and this also is what is amazing, that we have so many options these days as opposed to our parents' days. The point of the movie, these are her, her words, is what is that it defines family. It isn't necessarily the traditional mother, father, two children, and a dog named Spot. So this book that was written 3,000 years ago, this Bible has a lot to say about godly manhood and womanhood, and it's relevant to what Jennifer Aniston said. It's relevant. Uh, how about this? I read an article recently about the ban, what the author called the ban phenomenon. Okay? The ban phenomenon is the word that people are now using for men that can't grow up. It's a cross between a boy and a man. It's a ban. All right? And it's a phenomenon that's, that's sweeping our country. Here's some points that it made. Okay? It, it may sound silly, but here's the point. When we, when we know that one in five men over 25 are still living with their parents. One in five men over 25 still live with their parents. Um, how about this? Half of American males between the age of 18 to 34 play video games every day. Not only play them every day, but play them for three hours. Over half of American males, adult men, 18 to 35, play video games for three hours a day. How about this? The average video game buyer in the United States is... How old do you think the average video game buyer is? It's just 23, 30, 35, all right? 35. So that's, that's the ban phenomenon that's in our culture today. Honestly, I've seen it creep into the church. I, I don't go to church planter conferences very much anymore because I got tired of the banliness of just boys and men acting like boys because they think they got to be a boy and act cool in order to be a church planter. I went to a church planting conference once where we played Guitar Hero in a service, in a worship service, and never prayed once. Because that's the cultural shift. It's cool to be a man. Don't grow up and be a man. And so this book, 3,000-year-old book, what it has to say about godly manhood and womanhood is relevant to the issue of banhood in our nation. How about this article that I read recently about major gender role reversal that's happening in our society. This year, for the first time in our nation's history, most managers in the private sector, most managers will be women. For the first time in any industrialized nation's history, for the first time, most managers will be women. For every two men that graduate from college, three women have done the same. Women are now exerting their influence in politics like never before. Yet the same study, the same studies show that women are more unhappy now than any time ever in history. What does the book of Ruth have to say about these role reversals that are happening in society today? Okay, What does it have to say about the good things and the bad things that come with such cultural shifts? What does the book of Ruth have to say? Um, an industry that's been hit, that has not been hit by the recession, is the pornography industry. Matter of fact, according to the most recent data, it is booming. Every second, $3,075.64 spent on pornography, and men make up 75% of that traffic. The book of Ruth is relevant to that issue, too. The book of Ruth, the Bible, is relevant to every issue of womanhood and manhood 
that we face. If you're single and looking for a spouse, issues of biblical manhood and womanhood are relevant to you. If you're married and wish to honor your spouse, issues of biblical manhood and womanhood are relevant for you. If you're in the workplace with people of the opposite sex, or you interact at any time with people of the opposite sex, issues of biblical manhood and womanhood are relevant to you. If you're a child this morning and you wish to be a good man or a good woman, a good dad, a good mom, a good husband, or a good wife, today's message is relevant for you. So let's walk through Ruth 2 today and examine three different things. The character of a godly woman, as we look at Ruth, the character of a godly man, as we look at Boaz, and we'll conclude with looking at the overall character of God that comes shining through in this passage. Now, verse 1 says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. The author begins Act 2 of Ruth with this stunning statement. Stunning only because in, in chapter 1, Naomi had told us that there was no relative left for Orpah or for Ruth. She had said, there's no one left for you guys. When in reality there was someone left, the author brings that to our attention immediately. In her bitterness, she had missed this fact. Now the name Boaz means strength or might. Uh, Some um, interpreters even think it means man of war. Regardless, it means he's a man's man. He's a dude of dudes, all right? That's Boaz. His, his, His name sounds cool. All right? You, you, you hear this deep voice, Boaz, I'm Boaz, you know? You know this week I felt, I felt like a dude of dudes this week because our friends had their truck break down in our, in our, actually at our house. And he, he has this F-250 jacked up on these gigantic tires. My lab can walk under the truck without it touching her. I'm like, man, I just feel like a better dude with that thing parked in my Driveway. Unfortunately, he came and picked it up yesterday. But for a week, man, you know, people driving down the street, I'm standing on the front porch. Boaz. All right? That's Boaz. Boaz is a dude of dudes. He's a man. Okay? It says here he's a worthy man. The term can mean rich or wealthy, which he was. The the scripture points out that he is a wealthy man. He's rich. But it can also mean Honorable, valiant, or strong. And so I think the scripture gives us that word because he's both of those things. He is rich, but he's also a very honorable, valiant, and strong man. And I really think that the author wants us to focus on that second meaning, and here's why. Because we also know from this, from this uh, passage or, or from the book of Ruth, in chapter 4, verse 11, Ruth is called a worthy woman, and he uses the exact same word. So, and we know that she wasn't rich and wealthy. But she was honorable. She was valiant. She was a strong woman as well. So both Boaz and Ruth are worthy. And so let's study these worthy people this morning. These honorable, valiant, strong people. This honorable, valiant, strong man named Boaz and woman named Ruth. Let's let's start with what the Bible teaches us here about godly womanhood. And looking at this worthy woman named Ruth. In verse 2 it says... Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. The first thing I want us to see is that a godly woman is a woman of resourceful diligence. Y'all are going to have to bring up my next slides for me. Is a woman of resourceful diligence. Ruth is not the type to sit back and moan over her lot in life. She's not... She's not Sitting back, moaning. She has every reason to. She's lost her husband. She's lost her father-in-law and her brother-in-law. That's a lot of death for someone to have to deal with in a very short period of time. Beyond that, she had been married for a few years and had no child. That's huge in Ruth's day. Now she's left everything, family, friends, culture, comfort, and has submitted herself to a life of widowhood and hardship that comes with living with Naomi. So... She submitted herself to those things, but she's not angry about it. She's not bitter about it. And on top of all of this, she's committed to living with her mother-in-law for the rest of her life. That's that's pretty tough. Not only that, a bitter mother-in-law. Okay, she's committed herself to, to, to these things, and she's gone through such hardship. She has every right to just grab the closest chocolate bar and find a place to sit down and veg. She has every right to. But she doesn't. 
She knows the needs. She knows her situation. And she immediately gets busy. She gets to work. Says she heads out to the field to glean. Now what is gleaning? Real quickly, gleaning was kind of the welfare program instituted by God for the poor, the widowed, and the foreigner, which Ruth was all three of those. It was a system God had set up. We read about it in Leviticus 19 and also in Deuteronomy 24. Here's what it says. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, do not go back and get it. It shall be for the sojourner, for the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. This was God's system for taking care of the poor. When you go out and you glean your fields and, oh wait, we dropped some stuff, leave it. Leave it. For the poor. And this was the system. Now, I'm not sure why Naomi is not out there, to be honest with you. As I read this passage, I'm thinking, why is Naomi? She is still young enough to be out there and to be picking up and to be gleaning. I, I, I kind of am guessing, but I think it's tied into the fact that she's bitter. I think she is grabbing the nearest chocolate bar and sitting down. And Ruth is not. Ruth looks at her circumstances and says, you know, I'm going to get busy. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to keep on going, even though life doesn't make sense, and life seems to be against me right now. Ruth is working. She's showing initiative as she heads out on her own to do this. I also want us to see how hard she worked. Skip forward to verse 7. I'm not going to go through this passage like I normally would a passage. I'm going to skip around a little bit. Skip forward to verse 7. It says that she said this when she comes up to the foreman at the field of Boaz. She says, please let me glean. This is the, the foreman recalling what she said. Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued. The, the Hebrew there for she has continued literally means she has been on her feet. So she came and she's been on her feet. She's continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. And even after resting some and even after having dinner with Boaz and his workers, we read in verse 17 that she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned. That's not easy work. To glean all this and then to beat it out and to get the grain and to take it home. She, she didn't just get busy. She worked hard. She shows initiative. She was industrious. She was diligent. A godly woman is a woman of resourceful diligence. In the world that begs us to whine about our circumstances, to, to drown out our sorrows with soap operas, in a world that tries to get us to just feel sorry for ourselves and, and to put upon our shoulders some sort of sense of entitlement that I don't really deserve this, I deserve better. Ruth is a woman who just gets busy. Despite her circumstances, she's going to go to work and she's going to make things happen. She's the Proverbs 31 woman when it says in verse 13, she seeks wool and flax and she works with willing hands. She's like a, the ship of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it's yet night and provides for her household. And then in verse 27, we read that she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. The best place Satan can get a woman is in idleness. Just, just veg. Just don't worry about life. Just forget about things. Whereas a godly woman says, she's, I'm not going to eat the bread of idleness. I'm going to get to work. A godly woman realizes that Whatever we, her hand finds to do, according to Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. But we see in this passage that a godly woman is also a woman of gracious submission and also humble gratitude. I'm going to mention those together because the next passage we look at, you see all of that coming out. Gracious submission and humble gratitude. Look again at verse 2. She says, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain. She's talking to Naomi. Now, our English translations don't do that phrase, let me go, justice. Because in reality, she's not just telling Naomi what she's going to do. It's instead a polite request. She's asking permission. And in doing so, she's showing tremendous honor and, dare I say the S word, submission in this passage. She is. She's showing honor and submission to her mother-in-law. She's showing gracious submission. And we see it again in the foreman's report that I read a minute ago. Remember what he said he, when he's reporting to Boaz, what she said? He says this. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. Ruth does not show even a hint of entitlement, even though she is entitled to go into the field. She doesn't come up to the foreman and quote Leviticus 19. 
She doesn't come to the foreman and quote Deuteronomy. She doesn't do that. She asks permission. She shows humility, graciousness, submission, and asks if she can work the field. That's godly womanhood. Later, she calls Boaz Lord. Now, this may make us bristle today, but in Naomi's day, it was a tremendous sign of respect for her to call this man, who was also her elder, Lord. As the master of this field and as someone older than, him, than she was, he was her Lord. And she was to use that phrase, that term of respect. Today, I guess it would be similar to using the word sir and showing respect to people. And he also uses a respectful word when he calls her my daughter. Okay, it would be like him saying young lady. This is respect. This is submission. This is meekness. And on his part, it's chivalry. Now, I want to say this. Real quickly here, we don't like the S word today, submission. Because I believe, unfortunately, we've made submission synonymous with subjection, but that's not the biblical truth. Submission is not subjection. That's not what the Bible teaches. And we don't have time to really go into the biblical teaching of submission this morning, but it's there and Ruth exemplifies it. Let me just say this. Submission is not subjection and chivalry is not chauvinism we got to get that in our heads because the culture says the opposite. Submission is not subjection, and chivalry is not chauvinism. Men, do your part to treat women with respect and honor. Be chivalrous. Be knights in shining armor. And women, show respect and godly submission when it's appropriate, when it's right. Her humility and gratitude shine through in verse 10. Okay, after Boaz has, has responded to her with, with this generous display and allowed her to, to, to reap in, or allowed her to, to glean, she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? She's not worshiping Boaz here. She's showing respect, and more importantly, she's showing stunned gratitude. She is sincerely overwhelmed by his kindness, and she's not too proud to be humble. And to show gratitude. Pride is the enemy of godly womanhood and godly manhood. It kills it. It strangles it. Boaz then compliments her on what he's heard about her. And this is what she says after that. I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant. Though I'm not one of your servants. She's not allowing his flattering words to go to her head. How do we know? Well, this response, for one, is filled with gratitude and not pride. And secondly, when she goes home to Naomi and reports what's happened, she doesn't start telling Naomi all the great things that Boaz said about her. She doesn't say, oh, Boaz said this about me, and he said this about me. And you know, Matthew Henry wrote this. I found this this week. I love it. Humility teaches us not only not to praise ourselves, but also not to be forward to publish others' praise of us. That's true humility. Okay, Not just not only praising, not to praise yourself, but also not publishing, oh, so-and-so said this about me. <laughs> you know, that's false humility. Humility just goes about your business. Let's God take care of everything else. A godly woman is a humble woman, a woman of gratitude. Wives, when's the last time you thanked your husband for protection, for provision, and for carrying out the difficult role of headship in the home? It takes humility, gratitude, and gracious submission. To thank your husband on a regular basis for protection, for provision, and for carrying out the difficult task of being the head of the household. But that's the type of woman that Ruth is. The last trait I want to point out for her is faith-filled faithfulness. Ruth is undoubtedly a woman of faith. We've seen that in those famous words that we read earlier from chapter 1. She's left everything to follow Naomi, but more importantly... She has by faith embraced Naomi's God. She has embraced Yahweh. That's the most impressive thing that Boaz has heard about her. Let's look at what Boaz says when he compliments her. He says, says Boaz answered her, uh, I believe this is in verse 11. Boaz answered her, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and come to a people that you did not know before. This is the key verse, verse 12. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come 
to take refuge. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. We'll talk more about the significance of this, um, this, this phrase here actually when we get to the next chapter. But what Ruth has done here, Boaz is painting a picture by using this phrase that Ruth has left her homeland and embraced uncertainty and has come under the protective wings of Yahweh. She's trusted in, she's put her hope in, she's put her faith in Yahweh. What a beautiful picture of faith. We are not strong birds that come flying into God's nest by our own free will. No, instead, we are helpless little chicks unable to fly, unable to feed ourselves, unable to stand against our predators. Without a protector, we would die. But God is a mighty eagle spreading his wings over those who take refuge in him. And by recognizing, we are helpless. That's the picture of faith. Psalms is filled with this phrase. Let me just give you a couple of them. It says in Psalm 91.4, He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. Psalm 63.7, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Psalm 57.1, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in, my, in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. This is a phrase that gives us a picture of what faith really is. Ruth is a woman who takes refuge under the mighty wings of God. She's a woman of faith. She's trusting in God to protect her and to provide for her. I think that's why she set out. If you're a person of faith, you can be a hard worker, a woman of industry, and a woman of initiative, and go and do things like Ruth did, and step out on faith. She didn't know if anybody was going to help her, especially her. She's a foreigner, not only a foreigner, but a Moabite foreigner. She's the worst type of foreigner. And yet she steps out in faith. Her faith enables her also to show faithfulness to Naomi. We've already seen how she's been faithful to Naomi. And we don't have to dwell on that much longer. But I just want you to look at the very last verse, last words of the chapter. It says in chapter 20, in verse 23, second part of that, it says, And she lived with her mother-in-law. Why does the author point this out? It's like, well, duh, we know she's living with her mother-in-law. I think he wanted to point out that success has not changed her at all. Now that God has begun to bless her in a special way through Boaz, she's not showing up at Naomi and saying, hey, I can do this on my own. You didn't even come out and glean, woman. I'm going to go get my own house. She continues to show faithfulness to her mother-in-law, that bitter old lady that she has to go back to after gleaning. She lived with her mother-in-law during the whole harvest Now I want us to consider Boaz, a godly man. A godly man, first of all, is a man of spiritual influence. A man of spiritual influence. Notice the very first thing we see about Boaz, verse 4. And behold, Boaz, i got to say his name like that. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Now is that your boss? Your boss walk in on Monday morning? The Lord be with you, Toby. Lord be with you. And Toby sticks his head out of his little office and says, The Lord bless you. (laughs) Is that how it happens? Probably not. Not for most of us. But that's the type of boss Boaz is. He's a man of spiritual influence. His workplace is a place where his godliness shines through. You see, it's one thing to let your godliness show here or at community group on Wednesday night. But it's at the water cooler. It's when you show up on Monday after the difficult weekend. It's whatever. It's when you get there and you're in the workplace. That's where the godly influence of a man is really put to the test. Are you going to be a godly influence in work, in those situations, perhaps the things we don't really consider to be spiritual things? The Bible is relevant to the way you treat your employees, co-workers, and superiors. Boaz's words here show a trust in God's providential hand on the work that they did. And their response shows a belief that God will indeed bless those who trust him. The test of our character is how we act when we walk out of here and we get into the mundane things of life. How do we treat our co-workers? How do we act? Would people say of us what they say of Boaz? Well, that, that guy's a godly man. Okay? Now, y'all might think it's kind of weird, but try it, try it tomorrow. Walk into your workplace and say, the Lord bless you. See what happens. Okay? Now, if you get fired, don't get mad at me, all right? But in all reality, 
look for ways to be a blessing in your workplace so that people are influenced by your godliness. That's a godly man, a man of spiritual influence. We can see the influence he had on his employees. Look in verse 7 again. Okay, this is, again, I've read this verse, this will be the third time now, but this is the, this is the foreman. Okay, when she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves of the reapers, it says, so she came and has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. What does he do? He doesn't ask for permission. He doesn't say, you know what, Boaz isn't here. He should be here around dinner time. He doesn't ask for permission. He, says, he lets her go. He gives her permission to do this because he knows his boss. He knows Boaz is a godly man. And Boaz would want this woman to be able to reap, I mean to glean in this field. He doesn't have to ask permission. The influence of Boaz is already shining forth in the employee. We also see it in, that, uh, in the verse that we read earlier about her working. That verse 7 again. It says, except for a short rest. Actually, in the Hebrew, this is kind of a disputed phrase because it's really hard Hebrew to try to translate. It could also mean taking rest in the house. There's probably a house or a shelter there in the field where they would get out from under the heat. We, they'll have dinner here in a little bit. Okay, and it says that she worked, except for maybe a short rest, in the house. So apparently he went above and beyond the call of duty. Leviticus and Deuteronomy don't say anything about giving these people a rest in the house. But he allows her to take a rest in the house. Gives her permission to work the fields because he's been influenced by a godly man. And I guarantee you Boaz is pumped when he gets back. He's like, yeah, you did the right thing. Thank you. If he'd gotten back and the guy had gone, I just didn't know. You know, you, you were kind of late. And so I just told her to go home. He'd have been disappointed. And he'd have realized, I'm not the influence I need to be in this field. A godly worker has been influenced by a godly man. And we see that emerge more in the passage here. We see that Boaz is a man of responsible leadership. Boaz comes out from Bethlehem to observe the harvest. Of course, the harvest was happening in the fields outside the city walls. Okay? He isn't a hands-off guy. He takes responsibility. He knows his workers. He knows them intimately. He walks up and immediately, wait a second, who's that? He's, got, he's a rich man. He probably has lots of women and men working out there. But he knows his fields. He's a responsible worker manager, and he realizes there's a woman over here that doesn't quite fit in. That's, she's not one of our workers. Who is that? Who is this woman? He's a man of responsible leadership. He's not an absent boss, unaware of what's happening in the fields. We also see that he's a man of gentle authority. Authority and headship are misunderstood in our day. Like I said earlier, chivalry is not chauvinism. But neither is male authority supposed to be authoritarianism. Okay. Male authority is not supposed to be just hard-fisted authoritarianism. And in Boaz here, we see a gentle leader. Look at what he says in verse 8 to Ruth. He says, now listen, my daughter. That's a very gentle phrase. Do not go and glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Boaz has heard about this Moabite woman. He's heard about his relative Naomi, that she's returned. He knows their situation is dire. And so he does what every man should do who's faced with an opportunity to serve others and to meet the needs that are in front of them. He takes leadership. He has a plan. He takes charge. I love this. He has a plan. He doesn't just say, ah, boy, I don't know what to do for this woman. He has a plan. There's a reason that they call men Mr. Fixits, because that is the way God's wired us. He's wired men to have a plan, to, to lead, to have a plan for your home. And, and I know from experience that women get frustrated when the man doesn't have a plan and fails to take that leadership role and to have the plan. What are we going to do? And that's Boaz here. He doesn't just sit back. He has a plan. He has a plan for her protection Stay by my young women. I've charged the young men not to touch you. He has a plan for her provision, okay, for her to continue to be able to glean. But also he tells the young men to, to draw water for her. This was, by the way, much more than what was expected. And so he's showing gentle leadership here in this passage. What did the widow lose when she loses her husband? I mentioned it earlier. She loses provision, protection, and purpose. What a widow would lose in the scriptures when she lost her husband. And what's Boaz beginning to step in and do? 
be providing her protection. She's providing her provision. And we'll see in the next chapter that that purpose comes flying in as well. This is a beautiful passage of godly manhood and godly womanhood. It's okay to be a Mr. Fix-It. Just do it with gentleness and meekness. 1 Timothy 5.2 tells us to treat older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. He's treated Ruth with gentleness and kindness and respect. Ruth says here in this passage that she's been comforted as he's spoken kindly to her. When she says that, that he's comforted her and spoken kindly to her, I think what we're beginning to see here is she's starting to fall for this guy. Now, this guy's Boaz. He came riding in on the big truck, but he's not this authoritarian, what are you doing in my field, woman? He's gentle, loving, realizes her need and begins to provide protection, provision for this person in need. So I mentioned that he went above and beyond the call of duty. We have in our home, we've, we've had a definition of honor that we've been driv- driving into our kids for, well, since they were uh, very little, all right? Two. This is our definition for honor. Honor is treating people as special, having a good attitude, and doing more than what's expected. Honor is treating people as special, having a good attitude, and doing more than what's expected. You clean your room, that's obedient. You clean your sister's room, that's honor. Honor. And that's Boaz here. He is a man of honorable. So honor. So I want to turn to my last character trait for Boaz. He shows honorable generosity. Look at verse 14 and following. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also, pull some out of the bundles for her, leave it, leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. He's really going above and beyond now. I think this is our indication that he's starting to fall for her. Hey, pull a little extra out for her. Leave a little bit behind. Do more than what's expected. First of all, the meal was more than what was to be expected. Okay? To, to have, actually to have wine out there for them to dip their bread in was very, very uncommon. I mean, that's not what you do out in the fields. This is more like a meal that would happen in a home in Bethlehem. So the, the meal was uncommon. The way he treats his workers is uncommon. By the way, the name of our men's Bible study is called Uncommon, coming up here in the next few weeks. We're going to look at this. How do we be a biblical man? Second of all, inviting Ruth to participate was way beyond what was expected. Okay, Boaz is shattering some gender barriers here. When he tells the women to draw water for her and invites her to sit with the reapers, he is blowing up the gender barriers of the time. That's way more than what's expected. Thirdly, the amount he serves was far more than generous. She had leftovers. Finally, he really goes above and beyond by telling his workers to intentionally leave out some grain. He's living out grace. He's not stingy with his leftovers. Gleaning is what you do with the leftovers. Now, little side note here. There is a lot to be said here. We could do a whole other sermon, which we're not going to, and I will get this one done eventually. There's, there's a whole lot to be said here about a godly rich person and a godly poor person as well. We could do a whole other sermon about how to be a godly rich person and how to be a godly poor person. Godly poor, work hard, show honesty and humility, and don't have this sense of entitlement or a chip on their shoulder. Godly rich people are selfless, generous. It's the gospel in action, looking for opportunities to bless and doing more than what's expected. More than just our leftovers. She was entitled to the leftovers. What does he give her? More than the leftovers. Guys, the way you be a godly person with your finances isn't just to leave the leftovers to help people out. It's to take some out of what you've already got for yourself and deal, give that to the poor. That's how to be a godly person of wealth. But that's a whole other sermon. We won't go there this Sunday. I think, like I said earlier, I think he might be smitten a little bit. I think she's quite enamored with this godly man, this man, this dude of dudes. Okay? He's a man of honor. He's valiant. Uh, he has, shows valor, diligence, hard work, prudence, graciousness. He's a man of leadership and wisdom. He's selfless, polite yet masculine and confident. Naomi recognizes that everything that has happened to her is way above and beyond. Everything that happens to Ruth was way above and beyond what was expected. When, when Ruth comes back and reports to Naomi, Naomi says, 
Her mother-in-law looked at what she had gleaned. It said in verse 18, okay, and then also Ruth brought out the food leftovers and gave it to, to Naomi, which, by the way, was a beautiful picture as well of provision. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, the man's name with whom I worked today was Boaz. So Naomi's blown away here. My goodness, what, what happened? And then Ruth says, the guy I worked with today, his name was, was Boaz. This brings me to the very end of the sermon here. Because I would love to have seen Naomi's face. Wouldn't you like to see Naomi's face when, when, when Ruth says, Boaz? Okay, because... Ruth would have, Naomi would have said, oh, yeah, I forgot about Boaz. Now, all of a sudden, she's seeing God's tapestry. <laughs> you went to the field of who? Boaz? He's one of our kinsmen. He's one of our relatives. He's, he's a redeemer. And she begins to see what God is doing. She says, may he be blessed by the Lord. And now she says this, speaking of the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Sweet Naomi's coming back. Remember her name means pleasant? Who's, the Lord has shown kindness to us now. He's not forgotten the dead. He's not forgotten the living. And Mara, bitter old woman, is fading away. Now Naomi's back because she's beginning to see the character of God, that God works all things together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. She's beginning to see God's character emerge in this story. Naomi's eyes have been opened. She's realized that God has not brought her back empty. Indeed, he has brought her back, for he is sovereign, but he's brought her back with an amazing and godly daughter-in-law named Ruth, and he's brought them back to a redeemer named Boaz. Oh, what sweet providence of God. The author draws on the irony of, of, this, of God's providence in this whole story when he, when he says in verse 3, go way back to verse 3. Like I said, I'm skipping around today. When, when it says that Ruth set out to go to the fields, it says, So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field that belonged to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. But I can guarantee you the author does not think this is luck. The author is intentionally drawing out an irony here. What we view as luck, what we view as just some sort of, oh, wow, does that just happen? God's in control. God controls the lucky things in life, too. God controls the mundane things of life as well. He's drawing out what I call the irony of the ordinary. You, you, you see, we all like to proclaim God's sovereignty in burning bush moments. We all like to proclaim God's sovereignty when buildings and land are given to us, little bitty puny church meeting over in a school. Booyah! That's God's sovereignty. We all like to proclaim God's sovereignty, but, but you know what? It's the mundane, the little things, the things we just don't, oh, that just so happened to happen. That's where God is sovereign as well. That's where God's at work as well. But those are the things we kind of forget. And I think that's why the author says this. She just happened to wander over into the field of her Redeemer. God's in control. He's sovereign over a young Moabite woman walking outside the walls of Bethlehem and into a field, not just any field, the field of Boaz, her redeemer. Think about how many times your life has been changed by something simple and not spectacular. Someone you met, maybe your spouse. I mean, how many of you did your spouse drop out of the sky? God says, here, Toby. All right, with the exception of Toby. It was probably just some circumstance. That you just considered, oh, I just happened to be at that place at that time. I met Heather, at, we were in college, and she was at the cereal thing in the cafeteria, because cereal was the only thing you could actually eat in our cafeteria at Hardin-Simmons. And so she's getting cereal, and I walk up and say, hey, you're Todd's sister. Todd was my friend who I knew. Little, hey, you're Todd. Oh, she has to point out that I said little. I didn't say little. I just said, you're Todd's sister. And she says, what did you say, shut up or something like that? And, uh, you know, just walked away, because she was so tired of being called Todd's sister. And I knew Love at first sight. No, I didn't. I didn't know. Like, man, she's cranky. All right? But, hey, had I not walked up to get cereal because whatever it was they were cooking over at the Mexican section just looked nasty, had I not walked over to get cereal and meet Cranky Heather getting her cereal, who knows? 
God is sovereign over the little details of life. I praise him that day that the Mexican food stunk. All right? And I met my wife. God providentially puts little mundane, day-to-day things that we don't even think about into our lives. That's how sovereign he is over the things we might consider just be, oh, it happened. So let me conclude. What a beautiful story we have unfolding here. It's more beautiful than we may think. It's more beautiful than Ruth realizes, than Naomi realizes. And it's more beautiful than we may realize when we first look at it. Because underneath this story of love between a man and a woman, a godly man and a godly woman, is a story of God's love for his people. This is a story about a redeemer. Ruth's redeemer and our redeemer. This is a story about Ruth's redeemer and it's a story about our redeemer. As the story unfolds, we will see how the words of Spurgeon come true. Spurgeon said this, Jesus is our glorious Boaz. I love that phrase. Jesus is our glorious Boaz. But we'll have to wait for that till next week, all right? So here comes the conclusion to Acts, I mean to, to Act 2 of Ruth, of this story about this amazing godly woman, this amazing godly man, and this amazing God we serve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that Jesus is our glorious Boaz. And God, as we come now and respond just with song and with, with bringing our offerings and bringing our prayer requests and maybe just coming and praying or, or praying where we're at, God, may we just realize how glorious our Boaz is. As, as beautiful as the picture is here of Boaz doing all these things for Ruth, and as helpless as the picture is here of, of Ruth, how helpless she is and difficult things are for her, God, we recognize that we're a million times more helpless, and Jesus is infinitely more beautiful. And so, God, we just praise you that Jesus has shown us grace, that we don't even deserve the leftovers. We deserve to be cast out of the field forever. And yet our glorious Boaz allows us to come and does more, infinitely more than what's expected. To be our Redeemer. To provide for us a salvation that we couldn't provide for ourselves. To give for us a protection from sin, from Satan, from our own self, and from hell that we can't provide for ourselves. And Lord, to give us a purpose. A purpose that we can live out every day in our workplaces, in our families, in the way we treat wives and husbands and children and co-workers. And a purpose we can live out by going on mission trips and whatever it might be, God. You, Jesus, are our glorious Boaz. And because you loved us so much, and you wrote us into your love story, we can sing to you these beautiful songs. And we can pray to you these heartfelt prayers. And we can give to you these sacrificial gifts of offering. So Lord, this morning as we pray, let our response be heard. And may the sacrifice of praise rise to you like a sweet aroma. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand, if you would, as Mark concludes us with a song. Just sing to our glorious Redeemer. Sing holy, holy, holy. God in three 
holy, holy. darkness hide thee. Oh. 